So if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 5 verse 14 to chapter 6 verse 7. We are, we are, we are covering the final uh, offering of, in Leviticus. In terms of, there's five offerings that Leviticus begins and starts out with. And we're going to look here now at the final one. And in our studies of the offering so far, uh, we, we find that all these offerings, there's some overlap to them, right? They, they all deal with some aspect of atonement, some aspect of uh, being drawing us close to God. And specifically with the, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, so these are the five major offerings, but specifically with the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, we find that these three rituals contain a certain theology a theology of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement meaning we need atonement, but a way to re- achieve that atonement from God is through a substitute. And we see that substitute usually in the form of a lamb, of a, of a bowl, of, of different animals that they use as our substitute, a blood sacrifice needed so that we can be reconciled to God. And the burnt offering then, the burnt offering offers, shows us a holistic, the, the really encapsulates and uh, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. It, the burnt offering teaches us that our need for reconciliation. The sin offering focuses on a different part of substitutionary atonement. It focuses more on purification, which is why sometimes the sin offering is called the purification offering. It tells us, it teaches us that sin doesn't just need to be forgiven, but it needs to be cleansed because sin defiles the worshiper. And so sin offering needs us, teaches us our need for purification. And tonight, we're going to look at the guilt offering. And the guilt offering focuses upon reparation. Reparation, that is the need to repay the debt that is owed because of sin. It's a repayment. We see, we're going to see here tonight that sin is not just a disobedience. Sin robs God of his glory and his holiness. And that creates a debt. A debt between the worshiper and God. A debt that needs to be repaid. And so with that, I haven't been reading uh, Leviticus like in the beginning of my sermons because we've been covering huger chunks. But today, since it's a smaller chunk of passage, I, I do want to just read through uh, this this law of the guilt offering, uh, and so, so that we can actually hear the words of Leviticus just read out loud. Uh, so turn me your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 5, starting with verse 14. This, this is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation, a ram without a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments out not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him 
Give to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest, as his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. This is God's word. So as we look into the guilt offering here, I want us to first just understand the ritual itself because it's actually probably the most simplest explanation of all the rituals that we looked at. Right? The, the, the guilt offering ritual here, really all it is is, is, a, is a ram. Right? A ram is a male lamb. A ram without blemish is required. And interestingly enough, if, you, if we look back to the sin offering, and in sin offering, there's all these different types of animals that they're supposed to bring for each different person. A ram is actually not mentioned at all. And so what, really what we see here that a ram, I mean, the ram itself doesn't have much of a significance other than the fact that it's used a lot symbolically throughout scripture to, to talk about atonement, substitutionary atonement. But we do see here that the guilt offering is indeed distinct from all the other offerings. It's distinct specifically from the sin offering because a lot of people like to look at the two very similarly. It's distinct from the sin offerings because it's using a ram, an animal that's not mentioned at all in the sin offering rituals. And so this ram here is given to the priest and it says that the priest will make atonement for him with this ram, meaning the animal is going to be killed and the blood will be sprinkled on the altar and, and all that. But what we see here what we see here in the guilt offering is two things. Two things that makes this offering stand out from the rest. We see that this offering consists of two parts. Reparation and offering. Offering, which is the ram that we just talked about, right? There's an offering of a ram given as a sacrifice. But we see on top of that animal being sacrificed. On top of that, there's, a there's mention in here a need to make a restitution, a need to pay back, right? So on top of the ram, the sinner here needs to pay back what he has done in full. And on top of what he has to pay back in full, he also has to add 20% to that. It's almost like a fee for of inconvenience. So we see here two parts, right? Reparation and offering that's involved with the guilt offering. Now, what exactly is being repaid here? What sins are we dealing with? Well, there's two, there's two types of sins that we see here. And the first one we see here is the one about defrauding our Lord. And that's covered in chapter 5, verse 15 to 19. Defrauding the Lord. It says here, it says here in verse 15, it says that anyone commits a breach of faith, a breach of faith, and what is that? A, a breach of faith refers to one who breaks covenant. It's almost like it's almost like a business a business deal gone bad. Right? You're you're dealing with someone who defrauds the other other party. It's the the word here, breach of faith, is where we get the English word trespass. To trespass. To trespass, what that means is, is you're, you're crossing boundaries and you're offending the other party. Right? Trespassing isn't simply just crossing into a, you know, going over a fence and being in somebody's plot of land that you're not supposed to be in. A trespass here, you're, what you're really doing is you're offending the other party. You're robbing them of their trust. We think about the word trespass and we think about this word, this, this breach of faith. And we actually, we, and we look upon it throughout scripture, wherever else it's used. Uh, trespassing, it really is best understood in a way of how we defile a relationship. A trespass defiles your relationship with the other person. It makes it toxic. It, it, it creates distrust. Right? There's, there's suddenly this brokenness in that relationship. For instance... Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, talks about how King Uzziah was unfaithful when he decided to burn incense at the altar because the king of Israel was not supposed to burn incense. That, that was reserved for the priests. And so King Uzziah 
was unfaithful, it says he had a breach of faith against God because he broke he broke the he broke the law. Uh, we also see this same word of this breach of faith used to describe King another King, King Ahaz idols worship when he worshiped idols. That the same word is also used to describe trespasses between one another when they describe adultery in the Old Testament. Right? Adultery is when someone is unfaithful to their spouse. There's a breach of faith there. When someone is used to describe adultery, it's used to describe worshiping pagan gods, it's used to describe even marrying foreigners because Israel was supposed to be supposed to marry within each other. Only Israelites. And so they invite others in, defiled even the covenant of Israel as a nation itself. There's a breach of faith. But what exactly is the context going on here in Leviticus? It says here, if anyone commits a breach of faith, and it says if that person sins unintentionally, so we're dealing here with unintentional sins, sins unintentionally, any of the holy things of the Lord. What is here the holy things? The breach of faith here is set within the context of the holy things of the Lord. The holy things are, they're all things that belong to God. They are set apart for service. They're set apart for worship for God. Uh, for, for instance, the following holy things include stuff like unlawful eating. It includes stuff like breaking Nazarite vows or neglecting clean and, and clean and unclean regulations. And to the point of all these laws, right? When we read through, when we were studying Leviticus, and we're going to read through a lot of different laws that are coming up. The point of these laws isn't necessarily the law itself, right? If, if we think about it for a moment, right? There's food that's declared holy. What does it mean to have holy food? It it, it doesn't it doesn't mean we're we only like holy food is not kosher food, right? It's not it's not just what's marked kosher. That and when you see when you read the label kosher, it doesn't mean it's holy. It's not like it's suddenly super nutritious or it, it makes you super strong. It's it's not like it's suddenly get you you can get rid of all the bacteria and there's it's just perfectly healthy. Holy food, what makes it holy is that's dedicated to God. It's dedicated to God. In the same way, then, about our lives, when we talk about us obeying God, it's not, it's, it's, it's really about whether, it's not necessarily just about the obedience itself, it's, it's about whether or not you truly love God and honor Him as holy. To recognize that your relationship with God is one that is you set apart for worship to Him. You set apart in service to Him. God Himself calls you to be holy. And, and that doesn't mean that you're suddenly sinless. We all recognize we, we wrestle with still our sin. We're still being cleansed and sanctified. When God says, you are my holy people, it doesn't mean you're suddenly sinless. What it means is that now you, your life, it's exclusively dedicated to Him and Him alone. It's a commitment. You're exclusively belong to the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. And when you recognize that, then you recognize that everything that we do, everything that you do, what you, how you eat, how you live, how you walk, how you talk, when we say we do these things in the name of the Lord, we do these things for the glory of Christ, we're really talking about us walking a life that's truly dedicated to God. And a breach of faith then dishonors God's name. A breach of faith when we sin, when we walk in a way that's not according to God, and we say we're in the Lord, we're defiling His name. And so a trespass against the Lord is a dishonor it dishonors him. It defiles his name. It takes the Lord's name and runs it through the mud. And this matters. Take, say, for instance, it's like a soldier in the military. And a soldier in the military can be discharged for many reasons. There's honorable dischargements, 
right? Somebody, if they get injured and they can't no longer can perform the service. And you want that. If you're discharged, you want an honorable discharge. But soldiers can also have, they have three, they have, I was looking this up, they have so many different categories. They have a other than honorable discharge, bad conduct discharge, and the worst one, a dishonorable discharge. Now the other than honorable, other than honorable discharge, I have no idea why they have that category. But the bad conduct discharge and dishonorable discharge, what that is, is that if you, if a soldier commits a crime or if a soldier commits a felony and is tried and convicted of it, or a soldier has bad conduct within, within the military, it's, I mean, what it does is that it, it ruins the name of the whole squad. It ruins the name of the whole military and they're discharged from it and it becomes, it matters. It matters that if that, whether or not that person stays serving as part of the armed forces, it matters to the rest of the team because you're part of it. And that's why they're discharged from it if they, even if it's just their own personal felony, it's their own personal conduct. In the same way, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a believer, we are all living then underneath the name of Christ, underneath the banner of Christ. How you live and what you do matters to that name. A breach of faith then, a breach of faith in any of the holy things of God, what that means is that you break your covenant with God because you did not regard God as holy. This is, we, this is most readily understood. If you turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 51 talks about Moses' death and how God tells Moses, Moses, great man, right? He brought he brought Israel out of Egypt. You know, walked with God. He was the only person who was able to go up the mountain and be in God's presence. And yet, Moses, as he's leading them, was not allowed to enter the Promised Land because he committed a trespass. And this is what it says, verse thirty-two, uh, sorry, chapter thirty-two, verse fifty-one. Uh, pretty much God is saying, you are not allowed to enter into the promised land because you broke faith with me. You trespassed against me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Mirabat Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not, here's the definition of trespass, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. When we sin against God and we don't care for his laws, ask yourself, do you consider and honor God as truly holy? Do you care about his name and what that means in your life? Going back to Leviticus, I mentioned here that in the guilt offering we have offering and reparation and reparation means that there's going to be some kind of repayment so what is then does it mean to repay this trespass against the lord when you defraud the lord what payment needs to be paid right it, it tells us here that this ram is going to be valued in shekels so already there's, there's something here about being of, of value that's being understood and it says in verse 16, he should also, on top of the ram, make restitution of what he has done amiss in the holy thing. And so whatever this person has done, it can be calculated in some kind of value. So he's going to repay that. And on top of that, he needs to add a fifth to it. He needs to add 20% to it and give it to the priests. Now, what exactly is this repayment? Well, the repayment here, while we, there are certain ways to calculate it, it isn't always monetary. Uh, perhaps the best example that I can I, that we can see about how this works out with the guilt offering is found in Numbers chapter six. You can turn with me there. It's just the next book over, Numbers chapter six, talking about the Nazarite vow. Uh, if you guys don't know what the Nazarite vow is, it's just simply a vow that someone makes to commit themselves to the Lord for a specific period of time. And during that specific period of time, they're not allowed uh, to. to, to uh, I think they're not allowed to shave their heads. Uh, they're not allowed to drink wine. Uh, and they're only allowed uh, to, to eat certain things. Um, and, and so, and so these are, this is a, they call this a day of separation. They're dedicating themselves 
these days to the Lord, right? To serve the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 6, it says here that part of, part of the things that when, uh, starting verse 6, so this is, him, this, is, this, is, this is someone who's making this vow. And it says, in all the days that he's going to now separate himself, dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or his mother or for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So he cannot be a near dead body. Because a dead body will make him unclean. And these days, he needs to stay clean because he's dedicating himself to the Lord. So he, we read then in verse 9. So then what happens if someone dies suddenly beside him? So he, sin, he, he suddenly there's a sin, unintentional sin. It says here in verse 9, if, anyone, if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his, his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall say, shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves and two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. So we see here, there's offering being made, a sin offering and a burnt offering because he needs to be reconciled and he needs to be purified for his sin here. Even unintentional sins. And it says... He shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for what? For a guilt offering. Now, know what this is saying here. It's saying that after he makes the burnt and sin offering, he is now to bring another ram for a guilt offering. But on top of that, he needs to separate himself for the days of his separation. So the days that he vowed to be separated, dedicated to the Lord, he's now needs to spend that same number of days again for the Lord. To separate himself again for that same number of days. He needs to do that. Why? Because the previous period, says here at the end of verse 12, the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. In other words, when someone here is making, say for instance, he's making a vow to be dedicated for the Lord for, I don't know, 10 days. And then he, he unintentionally hits a dead body, becomes unclean. He needs to bring these offerings in, and then he needs to rededicate himself for that promised 10 days. That's the debt that he pays back to God. Those what we see here is that it's not always monetary, but what we do see that there needs to be a repayment, a fulfillment of your promise to God. Now, we don't take Nazarite vows today, but we are called to dedicate ourselves to God in the same way. When we call ourselves Christians, when we believe in God, we declare God, we declare Christ what? Not just a Savior, we declare Him as Lord. We are dedicating our lives as service to Him. Let me ask you, how are you dedicating your life to God? What ways are you doing so? What ways do you fail? We talked, you guys talked about technology last week. And yeah, I don't know the specifics what you guys talked about. I can only imagine but one of the things about technology is not necessarily the technology itself is not, not necessarily the, the fault of our sins. But the reason why technology is so dangerous these days is because of how entertainment has seeped through technology and captured our attention and our time. Let me ask you this question. How much has entertainment stolen your time away from God? How much will you repay though that time? How much has entertainment stolen your time from God? We are all called to be dedicated to the Lord. I mean, we're dedicating our days and nights to Him. We are to be in the Lord, always. I'm not saying that we should never entertain ourselves. But how exactly then? How exactly are we dedicating ourselves then to God? This is what we do when we when we decide to take fasts and breaks and retreats, are you dedicating those times truly to God? When you say you're going to go on a retreat, 
Are you going to truly spend that time in retreat for God? If you're saying you're going to spend your own fast on social media, what are you doing? Are you just not going on and doing other things? Or are you truly dedicating that time to God? What are you, how are you living your life? What are you promising God and what are you fulfilling? See, that's what we're seeing here with this guilt offering. Is that every time we sin, we we are stealing away what we've promised to God, our service to God, our lives to God. Every sin is a trespass against the Lord because every sin defames the name of God and makes Him look bad. It robs God of His honor and His glory in your life. We see here in this passage, moving on, that... There's, we talk here about a breach of faith against God, and, and here this is, there's, a direct, there's a direct connection to how we, how we sin against God. But a second way you can also breach, commit a breach of faith against the Lord is found in chapter 6. And here we see the example of defrauding your neighbor. Right, read here in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith, Right. A breach of faith against the Lord. And it says here, this is how they commit a breach of faith against the Lord. By deceiving his neighbor and so on. And, he, and the law describes really different ways that we can steal from our, from our neighbors. And so the sin here deals more with matters of material goods. You're, you're breaking really the Eighth Commandment stealing. And what we see here that with stealing... With stealing, we have to understand that the commandments of the Lord, right? The, for instance, the, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're more than just the simple, like, broad statement commandments itself, right? Thou shalt not steal. Stealing is much more than that. What we see, especially in this passage, what we see here is we see deceitfulness. That stealing is more than just taking something that's not yours. It is intentionally shaming in oppressing your neighbor, it's disrespecting, dishonoring them. You're breaching their trust. That's the breach of faith that's being done here. And again, we see here after this a need to a need for reparation and a need for offering. Right? It says here that if he recognizes his guilt, in verse four, he is then to restore. Restore what he took. Uh, sorry, verse 5. He'll restore what he took in full and then add another 20% to it. Right? And then in verse 6, he says he needs to bring in an offering. So there's a reparation back to the person he's stolen from. And then he needs to bring an offering to the Lord, a roundabout blemish, and that offering will be atonement for him. So we see again reparation and offering being done here with this guilt offering. But I want you guys to see how the order here is swapped from before. Right. Earlier, the breach of faith, when we're defrauding the Lord, the sinner is to bring an offering. And then it says here, he shall repay. He should also make then a restitution and add a fifth to it. He'll repay that amount. Right. So it's an offering first, then, then a reparation. But here, when you defraud your neighbor, it says here, the sinner must repay his neighbor first. And then bring an offering to God. What's going on here? Well, first we see what's being highlighted here. What's being highlighted here is that when we dishonor our neighbors, when we sin against one another, we're really, dis we're really dishonoring God. Right? And we again, when we anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, and he describes all these sins against neighbors. How we interact with one another reflects our relationship with God. And so we see here that this trespass, right? This trespass of robbing our neighbors, of deceiving them, what it does here is it highlights the value of the human being. It highlights the value of the human being that we are all created in the image of God and even more so for everyone who believes we're all part of the same body. Each one of us is valuable and we matter to God. And so to hurt one another is to hurt God. 
And this truth is, again, is elevated even more in Christ because for all of us who believe in Christ, are we're united in one. And so if we defraud your brother or your sister in the Lord, you're committing really a trespass against Christ himself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 tells us that we need to reconcile with one another before we can even come to worship God. Right, so even before you can, if you're standing there in Sunday worship, you're worshiping God, but you have some ill will against your brother, or you know there's something going on between you two. I mean, how can you stand there and worship Him? There's there's, there's something that must be going on in your heart to recognize that there's something wrong with that. In Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-three, Jesus says this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you're coming to the altar to worship God. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So there's relationship problems. Verse 24 says, Jesus commands us, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This, this right here reminds us of how much God truly cares for his people. God cares for his people. Right? When we come to God and we think about God, it's great that we can go to him and ask for forgiveness. Right? When we sin against one another, yeah, we can go to God and ask for his forgiveness. And a lot of times we do that. We recognize perhaps we, we lied. And we're, just, we're afraid to bring that up to our friend that we lied to them. And we just ask God for forgiveness. Or and we, how are we, what do we do? We, a lot of times, especially in, in Asian culture, we'll understand eternally our guilt and our shame. We can easily bring it to the Lord in private. But other than that, we, hopefully we can sweep the rest of it underneath the rug with everyone else. God cares for his people. He's telling us, hey, I, I want to give you forgiveness. But what matters, what matters is not that you just come to me and ask me for forgiveness. What matters is that you reconcile and heal your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ. Imagine, for instance, if you let your friend, if you let your friend here at church borrow your car and your friend takes it for a joyride, crashes it. I don't know where you take it for a joyride. Maybe just take it down City of Industry. There's big things there. Uh, and sure, they'll, they crash it, they told it, and they, they can come back and they can be really sorry about it. Really sorry. And they will ask for your forgiveness. They'll feel bad. And we know from scripture, we should forgive them, right? Forgive others as God has forgiven you. So we were like, okay, I know this sucks, but yes, I understand. Maybe it was an accident. Forgive them. But what if they just say they're sorry, they ask for your forgiveness, and they just walk away? I mean, where, where does that leave you? It, just, it leaves you with a broken car. And, and how, how are you gonna, how, what are you going to do with it? You see, true repentance, true repentance over your sins will seek to own up to your mistake. A truly repentant friend will seek for some way to repay you for the damages. I mean, and then some. Or if they don't have the money, you, you'll know what a true repentant heart looks like. They'll try to do something. Even if they can't come up with the money to repay you for that car. Right? I, know, I know cars are big expense. But like, they'll, they'll do something. They'll be more than just saying they're sorry. But you'll see in their actions and how they try to make it up to you. You see, God, God is telling us that His grace for us his grace, his grace for us is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. We're not just a, a church and Christianity and all that. We're not just a place where we just like let bygones be bygones. It's not just that. God here is in the business, in the business of bringing healing and reconciliation for sinners, between sinners and himself and between sinners with each other. God is saying, show me that you are truly repentant of your sin." Go reconcile. Pay back that person more and then come back and worship me. God 
wants us to reconcile with one another. That's the sign of true repentance. And really that is true repentance is really the focus of this of this offering, of this guilt offering. Right? With this guilt offering, we see here we see here that repentance is at the center of it. That repentance is not just us going to God confessing our sins, but repentance is us saying, I'm willing to pay back everything I did and turn my life around for you. That is true repentance. I want us to understand this. uh, So this, this is the application part. I really want us to think about what it means to repent and just define for you what repentance looks like in, in the context of this passage itself. Uh, first, let me let me go, let me go back to Leviticus chapter six or chapter five and cover a small portion here that I didn't really address too much yet. In verse seventeen, chapter five, verse seventeen, Leviticus chapter five, verse seventeen, it talks about inadvertent sins. Right, so it says, if anyone sins doing the things any of the things by that by the Lord's commandments that ought not to be done. Though he did not know it, so it's inadvertent, then realizes guilt, he should bear his iniquity. So well, what's going on here is that there's this guilt offering is being is it's also being used when somebody feels guilt, when their conscience weighs down upon them. And perhaps it's for a sin that is inadvertent, sin that they didn't, they didn't know they made, and they didn't they, they just feel guilt. Sometimes people bring guilt offerings even without knowing what sin they committed, but they just feel they just have this guilty conscience upon them. In order to alleviate that, they bring the sin offering. I want us to think about that. And now turn with me to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see here why a conscience, a guilty conscience matters. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, uh, we're going to look at verse 10 to 12, but to give context here, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and in the previous letter that we do not have, this letter is lost to history. But in the letter that he wrote before to the Corinthians, he called out sins to the Corinthians, called out specific sins to the Corinthians, and it grieved them. It, it built this guilty conscience upon them. And Paul grieved for doing that because he no one likes to call out other people's sins. It, it sucks, right? But he says that he rejoiced in their grieving. Why? Because they they grieve into repenting. And so we see here in verse ten. This is what he talks about: a godly grief, which really it's a guilty conscience that's being dealt with biblically, right? That's a godly grief. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets whereas worldly grief so guilty conscience without biblical truth produces death what we see here is that repentance begins with your conscience repentance begins with your conscience how do you handle your guilt first of all let me define guilt sin or sorry not sin scripture scripture never defines guilt as an emotion. Recognize that. Scripture never defines guilt as an emotion. Scripture defines guilt as a status. You're declared guilty because of your sins. So when we say today that we feel guilty, what does that mean? It it means you're feeling the shame over your guilt. It means you're grieving the fact that you've done something wrong. Even if it's even if it was unintentional or inadvertent, you recognize that you've committed a sin and you have remorse over it. You grieve over it. What we see here that guilt itself is not an emotion, but guilt produces negative emotions. The question then is, what do you do then with that guilt? What do you do with those emotions with that burden that's weighing upon you? Do you do you allow yourself to process through that biblically so that you can come to repent? Or do you allow that burden to weigh down your heart and gnaws at you and what it does is it slowly kills you? 
Paul says that a godly grief. And so here again, we're, we're saying that Paul's really saying guilt is a good thing when you deal with it properly. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. And what Paul here saw from the Corinthians repentance, what he saw is that repentance produces reparation. Verse 11. Corinthians chapter 7 verse 11 for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you so Paul saw this earnestness in them this earnestness in them to desire to reconcile desire to to do what is right right see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourself right to right what's wrong to clear yourself what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what punishment they're willing to take the punishment of their sins. They're willing to accept that because they knew they did what was wrong. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Not innocent that they didn't commit the sin, but innocent is the fact that they truly have been repentant because of the way they responded. They want to make up for their sin. And part of the way they make it up is the willingness to accept the punishment for their sin, the consequences of their sins. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 9, tells us a story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, who defrauded people of their money. And when he met Jesus, there's a change of heart. And what does that look like? Because we don't know that his heart changed, but what we see in that story is that when Zacchaeus met Jesus, suddenly he tells Jesus' disciples that he's going to give money to the poor, the money that he took from other people, give it to the poor and repay everyone whom he stole from four times the original amount. And in response to that, Jesus says this, salvation has come to this house. Not because he earned that salvation, but his works showed that he was truly repentant. Salvation has come to this house and produces this kind of repentance in him to repay back those he has defrauded. Turf, I am telling you today that if you have not been exercising true repentance in your life, do so now. I mean, how many times have you committed sin and just simply asked for forgiveness and moved on? How many times do you think you can just ignore the consequences of your sins? All sins produces a debt. All of them. They produce a debt. And, a, and this debt, it will create a gap between you and the other party. Between you and God or you and someone else. And that debt needs to be repaid with true repentance. And yes, I know some things that we've done in the past can never be undone. Some things can never be really just paid for in full we can never truly take back some words that have been said or some actions that have been committed but do you seek do you seek to right the wrongs that you have committed meaning what is your motivation do you desire to reconcile with those whom you have sinned against are you motivated in that way Repentance, true repentance, seeks to reconcile, seeks to repair the relationship. And true repentance then ends with worship. In verse 12, Paul says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. So Paul told the Corinthians all their sins, not necessarily for the sake of the of the sinner or the person who'd been wrong. But he did this so in order that, why? But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Meaning he called them out their sins to show them their hearts so that they can bring themselves to God. You see, false repentance leaves a guilt hanging upon you. Again, Standing there and worshiping God, knowing that you've done something wrong. How can you truly come before God? God sees every one of your thoughts, knows every one of your thoughts. 
if you truly recognize God as holy and as sovereign over your life, your sins, your guilt will weigh upon you wherever you're at. But true repentance frees you. Because true repentance reveals your motivation, your earnestness, your heart's desire, your motivation to reconcile what you've done wrong. And we see here that true repentance, even if you repay all your debts to every single person, there remain there remains still one last debt that no man can truly repay, our debt with God. Our sin has marred his holy name, defiled his image. And what and so repentance, ultimately, what it does, the why Paul cares about calling us out, why we need to care about our sins and our guilty conscience. Repentance, at the end of it all, brings us back to the cross. It brings us back to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus indeed is our perfect guilt offering. In Isaiah chapter 53, it's a prophecy about Jesus. And it says in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, it says this about Jesus. It says, It is the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus. He has put him to grief. And it says this in verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. So when his soul makes a guilt offering. Then he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Meaning when Jesus died on the cross. As a guilt offering for our sins. On that day, Jesus will see his people whom he saved Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 that this man the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and the result of that ransom first peter first peter chapter 1 verse 17 tells us here that if you call on God as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds if you call on God as father meaning you say God I have a relationship with you conduct yourself then with fear with a fear of his holy name throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. How were you ransomed? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. Our guilt offering. Jeez, what, what First Peter tells us is that the result of Jesus' offering is that we no longer have to repay God our debts. Instead, we are free to live our lives as God's holy children. All because Jesus paid it all. And so the big idea for tonight is this. That Jesus paid a debt of our sins so that we can experience the fruit of our repentance as forgiven children of God. And that fruit of our repentance means we are now free to reconcile and heal the relationships that we have with one another. For application, one last thing, and I, I want you guys to all turn to this because I want you guys to be discussing this in your in communion groups afterwards. I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to look at verse 9 to 15. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. Prayer. Here we see the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is showing us how to pray. And prayer is an act of worship. What prayer does is that prayer is a signal. It's a signal that we have a close relationship with God. I mean, don't be afraid to pray amongst people, with people, with unbelievers. Show them that your prayers is not just some kind of trite saying that you're saying with no meaning. Show that your prayers show you have a true relationship with God. In other words, prayer is a fruit of our repentance and a, and a fruit of Jesus' work on the cross. We are able to pray because Jesus paid for our sins. 
Well, I want to know something about this prayer, and I'll have you guys. I'll have you guys read in your groups. But I want to point out three things here, three elements of what we just said about the guilt offering. That's 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 interlaced into the Lord's prayer. First, in verse nine and ten, or well, verse nine specifically, it tells us here. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it mean to be hallowed be your name? It means that we revere God in his holy name. And we seek not to defile it. Instead, we seek to raise it up. Hallowed be your name. Then verse 12 talks about forgiveness. And notice what we're being forgiven of. The prayer says, forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with one another. These debts, and perhaps your translation doesn't use debts. It says, forgive us of our trespasses. Right? Trespass creates debt. And then we see in verse 14 and 15 that it matters how we then forgive others. If you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. In other words, true repentance seeks reconciliation with others. And through that, you experience the freedom, and the joy that comes from the forgiveness of God. Think about that. Read that passage together in your groups. And think about how that then is interlaced with how, what we just saw with the guilt offering. But all in all, I want us to see here that the answer is always in Christ. It's always the answer. But there's this sweetness to it. That when we recognize our guilt and our sins before God, and we truly repent, the cross of Christ just becomes so much more sweeter, so much more beautiful in our eyes. Christ gives that to us freely. Worship Him and walk with him and revere his holy name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for bringing us here. I thank you, God, for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that we can gather here to study your word and to see, God, just how much you care, Lord, about each one of us. And that you care about our sins. You care about how we relate to one another. You care about our relationship with one another. You care about our relationship with you. And you have provided a way for us to be reconciled. And in the Old Testament, there's a way through these sacrificial offerings of rams and goats and, uh, and, and bulls. But in the New Testament, in our church age, it is through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, what a gift to us. This perfect offering made by Christ, your Son, for us. So that we can repent and find forgiveness in you alone. Oh, what sweetness to know that our God loves us so. So I pray, Lord, that as we go in our groups and we discuss about what we learn, that we come to a place where we truly, truly just encourage one another to continue to walk a life of repentance before you and a life that seeks to reconcile our relationship with you, and our relationship with one another. And we are able to because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, again for bringing all of us here. I pray all this in your holy name. Amen.